This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality? So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, I teach a... I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give, um, like adults, about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep. And you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. Spirit uh, is, and and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, spirit is, is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby and that baby's, you know, two months old or five months old or 10 months old and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a, a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body and my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, 
Then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico. And we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West. You remember the Dust Bowl? You know, in the Midwest. Um, the Depression. Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. You're, you know... Economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope. And he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act. And I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, 
you also have, so you have agency, you also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways. But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because, or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope, right? The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, We've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, And with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. (laughs) And this demands management, and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some, some, some choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the You have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words, steward, agent, options, right? Pathways and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh, West, we'll make it through the drought. Let's just, let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the Coach's Corner. We're going to take a break. More on the Matt Townsend Show next Good won't get me into med school. That might be uh, something you've heard from one of your kids uh, trying to either get into med school or get into the university. Uh, all the stress, the 
the anxiety they're feeling about their studies. Today, social media is creating a world where students might have an unrealistic educational and professional uh, ideal or standard, replacing good, being a good person or a good student, with the need to be perfect or perfectionism. Here to speak with us today about perfectionism is Thomas Curran, an assistant professor at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. He's been uh, studying extensively this topic and uh, has uh, was um, has some great information for us, I think, about how we can handle or, or coach or lead our children um, to, uh, to manage this perfectionism or this need to be perfect. Thomas, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, my pleasure. Talk to us about um, what you are seeing um, with our with college students uh, around the world. Do, perfectionism is on the rise, I hear. That's right. We've recently done some work uh, looking at how perfectionism has changed over time among uh, well, separate cohorts of college students um, from 1989 to 2016. And you're absolutely right. The analysis that we've recently done has suggested that uh, levels of perfectionism among more recent generations are far higher than they were uh, among previous generations. And um, we think that that's quite an interesting finding. We think that chimes, well, seems to have chimed anyway with a lot of uh, people who have written and reported on the work. And uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting find that I think we need to pay attention to. Mm. What is, just define for us how how you define perfectionism so we're all on the same page there. So perfectionism is uh, broadly defined as an irrational desire for flawlessness uh, in combination with harshly self-critical tendencies when we don't uh, achieve uh, our high achievement standards. And there are three main dimensions or core dimensions of perfectionism. The first is what we most, uh, I guess most of us would uh, think about when we think about perfectionism is this idea of high or excessively high um, personal standards and, and the kind of uh, quintessential overstriver, somebody who works and uh, relentlessly uh, hard. And that's called self-oriented perfectionism because it comes from within. But there's another dimension of perfectionism, which is a social dimension of perfectionism, which is the perception that the uh, social environment and the immediate others in our social environment are, are highly expectant of us, or excessively highly expectant of us. That's to say that they expect us to perform perfectly. Mm. That's called socially prescribed perfectionism. And the final dimension is the type of perfectionism that's directed outwards onto others. So that's this idea that uh, we expect perfection from others and are punitive when they don't perform. Uh, and that's called other-oriented perfectionism. And uh, those three dimensions are collectively what we understand as this perfectionism uh, personality. And, and I guess it, it, it probably doesn't matter if you're putting it on yourself, if others are putting it on you, or if the environment expects it. Do they all have the same results of, of increased stress, increased anxiety? What's really interesting from our analysis is that it's that social dimension of perfectionism, so the perception that others are highly expectant of us, that has undertaken the biggest rise uh, in recent years, actually twice twice the rate of the other two, and that has obviously implications for uh, social pressures uh, that we might come on to. Uh, 
Why that's most important or why that's uh, particularly uh, interesting is because socially prescribed perfectionism of those three dimensions that I mentioned uh, displays the largest relationship or correlation uh, with serious mental illness. So those people who have high levels of socially prescribed perfectionism sorry, uh, tend to display uh, or tend to experience, I should say, uh, high levels of anxiety, depression, um, and even in the worst cases, there's a lot of research to suggest that it's associated with suicidal thoughts. So hmm. uh, it's a highly negative trait. Yeah, I bet, too, because it's it's your world. that You feel like the world's closing in on you, it seems like. The world's demanding mm-hmm. it of you. Yeah, for sure, and, and we've 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 kind of speculated on some of the pressure, but but you've already kind of mentioned a few of them in your in your introduction there. You know, uh, higher educational expectations on younger people are certainly, we think, feeding into a perception that the social environment is highly demanding. Social media too, uh, where people young people are bombarded with unrealistic uh, ideals of the perfectible self. Again can breed a sense that uh, the social environment expects us to be perfect and of course we can't really escape it so uh, when we tie our self-worth to high achievement and 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 presenting perfect perfect image and perfect uh, achievement scores to others then of course when we don't meet those expectations that can be highly damaging for our uh, for our psychological well-being. So are you so you're seeing the numbers go up, you're seeing a lot of more of it kind of being in the social uh, environment area um, that drives it. Some of that might be social media. Is it how how does it manifest? So as as students are in college and they they get there and they feel this perfectionism kind of creeping in on them, what do you see that they do? How do they go about um, you know demonstrating and acting out on their perfectionism? So we think perfectionism is largely a coping mechanism. Uh, to the excessive expectations that young people are placing on themselves and they feel that are being placed on them. Uh, You know, when uh, performance and achievement is so important in in contemporary culture, not only to reach the highest, uh, let's say, to get the best GPA scores in school, but also to reach the best colleges and therefore the best access to the best jobs, Achievement is so, so important in this context. And so we, so young people are not, tend to define themselves in very strict and narrow terms of a perfect GPA or a or access or getting into the best uh, college. And, of course, what that does is, it, it, in order to cope with, with those demands, you tend to internalize perfectionistic tendencies, high, excessively high standards, excessively high goals, because, of course, if we do that, we're setting ourselves or putting ourselves in the best position to succeed in this culture. Culture which has excessively high demands. So things like uh, overstriving, um, high levels of persistence, and uh, to the point where diminishing returns. That's to say that we go we go to the very limit of our capacity and then further. So not so it becomes damaging to our um, sense, you know uh, it becomes very exhausting cognitively and, and physically. Uh, so we tend to see um, those sorts of, sorts of behaviours creep into, uh, but also lots of worry and doubt about our actions and concern over uh, how we're perceived and, and how we perform, which of course are also very damaging for our uh, not only our, our sense of self-esteem but also our um, our levels of mental our mental health overall depression mm. anxiety etc um so we think it's certainly a way in which young people are coping with these excessive demands uh, and education is a big one but um it's not the only one of course there are also excessive 
uh, image demands that are placed on young people in social media, and, and the same things apply. Mm. Uh, again, we're speaking with uh, um, a Cur- Thomas Curran, who is a, a, an assistant professor in the Department of Health at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom, and his research focuses on perfectionism in young people. We're talking about the fact that more and more college students seem to be majoring in perfectionism. Perfectionism is on the rise, and uh, much of it, it seems like, is is coming from you know increased expectations on educational achievement, also um, uh, some social media pressures as well. What, Thomas, as a father of two uh, college-age kids, three college-age kids, what what are things we could be doing as parents to um, to make sure that that we set our kids up to to maybe not fall into this perfectionism trap? I think there's a few things that um, that we can we can do. I, I think the first and the most important uh, lesson is that um, self-compassion is very very important. Uh, we 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 tend to put everything on the line, particularly. And, and it's understandable that parents respond to high pressures uh, by involvement and over-involvement in kids' act- uh, educational activities. But, but over-involvement and high levels of uh, surveillance, which we also see increasing among parenting practices, uh, can, can, can be counterproductive because they, they tacitly teach children that or reinforce this idea that achievement is really, really important and that it's the only criteria of success or worth. And I think we need to be very vigilant of that and to emphasize that hard work, persistence, diligence, flexibility, being conscientious, you know, these are all great goals and great aspirations, but uh, perfection and flawlessness is not. Mm. And uh, so making sure that uh, goals are reasonable. Uh, that when your young people don't do as well as they want to do, that, that we make sure that they don't self-castigate. That they see the opportunity for learning in that in that space uh, and recalibrate goals downwards, so that they so that hopefully the next time they achieve. In which case we can start to build those aspirations upwards in more manageable chunks, and so there's not there's not there's not a consistent uh, they're not consistently faced with failure. So I think self, being self compassionate and and making sure that we see the opportunities for learning in failure is really really important for parents to teach the kids um, because it because it doesn't reinforce this social ideal that achievement is the be all and end all. And it seems like a lot of parents, even uh, like in the United States. We have access to our kids' grades online, and now we're checking them daily. We're checking if they're turning their assignments in. We're so over-managing the details that it probably, you're saying, gives the illusion to the child that this is so critical, that we have to be perfect at it. For sure. And and, and I think the, the... The metricalization, if that's a word, of education has been really damaging for young people because it's it's it gives them instant feedback as to where they sit in the social hierarchy, both in the in the microcosm of their own schools, but not only that, of course, uh, where they rank nationally amongst others, and and I think that's counterproductive because uh, uh, after all, learning and education is really about 
teaching young people how to interact effectively with the world, uh, how to learn to learn and contribute meaningfully to society, whether that be through um, if they want to go and be an engineer or they want to go and be a scientist or whatever it might be. Uh, It's really about that process that that allows them to interact with the world effectively. And we've kind of changed it into uh, something that's all outcome-focused and focused on the metric, focused on the grade, and forgetting that there's a bigger picture to the learning process. And I think it's really important for uh, as society for us to recognise that, uh, and for parents in particular to sort of resist that urge uh, to constantly monitor and constantly uh, be over-involved because that that reinforces uh, this message that kids should only really value themselves based on, on, on that metric. And and there's lots of research to show that, you know, when, when kids do see learning uh, as an opportunity to develop and grow, they actually perform better hmm. because they've got less stress, they've got less anxiety, they feel freer to explore and be curious. And as a consequence, uh, you tend to see that they perform better in exams and uh, courseworks and, and all the rest of it. So actually, it can be counterproductive uh, to be over-involved. Is, give us a little take, too, on the social media side of this. I mean, if I could, if I could talk my college-aged kid into being less involved in social media, do you sense that would help this? Social media is an interesting one because... It can be very positive, uh, particularly uh, for people with inter- or shared interests. It, it brings them together around common goals and can be very helpful uh, to build communities and, and, and relatedness among, among people. So uh, I think it, we have to be careful to resist the temptation to sort of jump on social media as, 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 as uh, universally uh, negative. But, but, the, but the, what I would say is that social media can be problematic for those individuals that use it with underlying vulnerabilities. And unfortunately, one of the underlying vulnerabilities is perfectionism, because those uh, who the perfectionists tend to use social media more uh, purely because it's a way of reinforcing a sense of self-esteem that's based on comparing favorably with others. So they feel that it's a platform that they can use to receive interper- that's others' approval and interpersonal validation through things like likes and um, uh, and uh, 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 friends and all the rest of it. Again, these are metrics, by the way, you know, yeah. how many likes, how many friends. Um, but th- it's a way for them to feel like they can gather a sense of self-esteem so they use it to bolster unmet needs and in, in, uh, an unmet sense of self-esteem and that's highly damaging because within that social media space they're constantly bombarded as I say with unrealistic ideals other people's curations of a perfect life and lifestyle and of course they take those curations at face value and make negative judgments about their own life and their own uh, image and of course over time and if we constantly use in social media to try to bolster our sense of self-worth is highly damaging because ultimately we're always going to end up feeling worse than other people, which impacts on our self-esteem, which impacts on our mental health. So social media is not university negative, but of course, if you see in your in your children certain vulnerabilities and perfectionistic tendencies, I would definitely encourage that you try to uh, limit uh, the time uh, on, on the platforms because they can be damaging for those individuals. Yes, great, great insight. Uh, Thomas Curran, thank you so much for your work, your insights. Again, Thomas is an assistant professor in the Department for Health at the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. 
and uh, given us some great lessons on perfectionism and boy, all the metrics we're creating when you think about it, it's it has consequences when we measure our children by so many metrics every day. Uh, the likes on their social media, the grades, how many trophies, how many yards they earned in running for the ball in football, lots of stuff that we're building our children's identity around, and it is uh, driving up perfectionism. We'll continue the discussion to a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Have you ever been uh, plagued by this uh, perfectionism? I, um, I see it in my life in a very specific way when I write things. Um, so I have... I, I literally right now have white papers that I've created on to, to write five books. And as I go through life, I keep picking up more information and then throwing them into these white papers. And so I'm ready to write five books. I just I just don't want to write them yet because part of what I found is writing my last book, I get so uh, kind of perfectionistic in the outcome of what needs to be in the book that I, I – I, I become immobile. I won't progress. I don't move forward. And I see that, notice, it's just this simple little concept that's in my head that makes me think I've got to, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfect. And the funny thing is, in, in all my perfection on that one idea, I then turn it over to editors, and then they just tear it to pieces. They just obviously didn't see how perfect it was. So if you notice, perfectionism is in the eye of the beholder. I guess unless unless of course, you know, um you bowl the perfect game in bowling, there's there's something that you can do perfectly, right? 300. You can you can hit that number. The hard part about perfectionism though is that it's not even just what it does to me, it's also what it does to everyone around me. Then I start to demand perfection. And now that we have the kids grades that we can look at, Every day, every week, I suggest to the, my clients that I work with, um, they're, they're checking it daily. I suggest they don't do it daily. I would check it maybe monthly, twice a month. Let's get the numbers twice a month. Let's not focus on it as a daily endeavor. Uh, maybe at the very most every week, but really spread out the, the way and the time we look at it. If you look at it at all, wouldn't it make more sense to just start to find out from our child what they're actually learning, what, how they're growing? The the um, some here, Let me give you a little test to see if you are a perfectionist. I'll ask you some questions. You run through your head and it'll kind of help you see if you if you're if you're running or tending or trending toward perfectionism do you feel like your accomplishments are never good enough you value people based on their achievements you know is an md more valuable than a phd but a phd is more valuable than a jd is a jd better than no degree how about a masters degree do do they have to have uh you know do they have to be an olympic athlete or do you always lead with their achievement do you believe that your best just doesn't cut it do you take mistakes personally and then you hesitate to try again? Are you vulnerable to rejection? Do you uh, set impossible-to-reach goals for yourself? Are you hard on others and on yourself? 
Do you expect perfection from others? Do you develop almost an obsession with it? Uh, do you fear that uh, failure in the relationship, um, you know, is is a sign that you know if you have to go get marriage help or marriage counseling, is it a sign that you're not you're not good enough? Um, you actually end up not pursuing relationships because you fear the outcome might be that you might they may not work. Uh, do you tend to be critical of your partner? So if so, you may have uh, a bit of the perfectionism in you. Um, Webster defines perfectionism as a disposition which regards anything short of perfect as unacceptable. And the torment for perfectionists is that they never find anything perfect because it doesn't exist. It just can't happen. It doesn't happen. And so you end up putting yourself in this ever never-ending spiral where your goal is something that you can't attain, and then you become obsessed with seeing how you don't ever get there, and it makes you spiral and spiral and spiral. So I want you to be thinking about you. How has perfectionism been impacting your relationship? Can you actually build a healthy relationship uh, if you are a perfectionist, and how can we start to um, how can we start to get rid of it? Like our good doctor Curran was telling us, if if you sense that you've got uh, perfectionism in you, if you sense that you it's already kind of part of your identity, your psyche, you might be one of the people that ought to start to minimize your use of social media, because social media does tend to play on the perfectionist. It's, you know, you might use it in an inappropriate way that would actually, you use it to get more likes, you use it to get more external validation, you use it to go be more comparative to everyone else that's on your your chain. And so um, you might want to back off of that. We also want to maybe, if you see it in our children, start to minimize the metrics and make life less about the measurables and start focusing on what I call the intangibles. The, The tangibles are those things that we can see. The intangibles are the things that are harder to see. Um, You know, a grade on a report card is a tangible that I can see, but the hard work and discipline that was put into that grade are the intangibles we can't see. And it might be more valuable to start shining our light on those intangibles. The hard work. Talk to your kids about work ethic and, and their hard work. Talk to them about their discipline. Talk to them about how resilient they are how the adaptable they are, how they could actually, uh, when that teacher threw that curveball and had everybody, you know, not do this assignment, but do this assignment, talk about how well they handled those intangibles that got that assignment done. Um, there's so much more power in helping the kids gather the tools of the intangible than than just solely the tools of the tangible, especially when you live in a world that um, would rather hold up the tangibles as the only way of of living, the only way of making it work, the only way of making life valuable and good. We also, I think all of us need to be more careful with how we um, and what we hold up and what we esteem. You know, we probably ought not make as big of a deal about something that um, that seems, you know, like trivial in the end. Uh, a, a, a vast or a basketball game, a football touchdown. These are wonderful things, but again, they're they're things that in the in the end won't matter on the deathbed. And yet we spend so much time looking for the perfect team, the perfect game, the perfect outfit, 
the perfect partner. I think it's impacting a lot of our dating today. It's impacting a lot of how our our youth uh, see marriage. I know a lot of people that don't want to go near marriage simply because it's not perfect. And yet, sadly, it's in that imperfection, honestly, that we grow, that we develop, that we become who we really are. We need the cracks in each of us in order to see the light, the goodness. I've noticed with my own clients, we need the breaks. They need the, they need the imperfections that make life hard so that they eventually have to look to God to live, right? They have to look to their God to figure out how to get through these difficult times with these difficult uh, imperfections. So praise the imperfection. Find the good in what you think is the bad and see if we can't make life a little bit more valuable in the chaos or in the breaks or in the imperfections. I don't know. It's a hard, hard uh, thing that I think all of us have to battle with at some point. And we now know our our youth are really suffering from it. So let's let's watch out for that. Little just little advice for you. Not it's not perfect. Relax. It's just an idea. But uh, don't make arguments either that perfection perfectionism is necessary. That's an illusion. Your God will eventually make you perfect. And by the way, your God already thinks you're probably doing a great job, even in the midst of all your imperfections. So. Let's let's be real about that. We will continue the journey. Up next, we're going to revisit an interview I did with Gary Chapman on the five love languages. Welcome back, friends. You know, um, a few months back, I, I talked to Dr. Gary Chapman. He's a nationwide marriage counselor, pastor, seasoned pro, uh, writer, and author. He's the author of the bestseller, uh, the book, The Five Love Languages, How to Express Heartfelt Commitment to Your Mate, which is a bestseller. Everybody's heard about it. And I wanted to go uh, to go revisit his interview. And so a few months um, back, as I was talking to him, I asked him um, to help us to know how to become fluent in the language of love. I began the interview by asking if he had any idea that his book would be so popular. You know, Matt, uh, when I wrote the book, I knew that the concept would help people because I'd been using it in my counseling for several years. Yeah. But no, I had no idea that it would sell uh, now 10 million copies. Is it 10 million? And be translated now into 50 languages around the world. Unbelievable. And because, I mean, I've written a book and it's like, it's hard. Books are hard. And to even know if they're going to sell. And But I have so many people in my office and, and they're citing your book all the time. Every time I say, you know, people have different needs. It, the first thought that comes to mind is the are the five love languages. Walk us through these five love languages. One of them is words of affirmation using words to affirm the other person. You look nice in that outfit. I really appreciate what you did. One of the things I like about you is it's just using words to affirm them. Mm. You can speak the words. You can write the words. I guess you could sing the words, Matt. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's using words to affirm the other person. Uh, you know, there's an ancient Hebrew proverb that says, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Mm. So when you give your spouse compliments, you are, you are building them up. When you give them critical remarks, it's tearing them down. Yeah. So words of affirmation. Uh, another love language is gifts. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. Uh, my academic background before I studied counseling was anthropology, the hmm. study of cultures. 
We've never discovered a culture where gift giving is not an expression of love. It's universal. Really? You know? Yeah. The gift says, hey, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. And I like to say uh, the gift doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, you can pick a flower in the front yard. That's what children do. Yeah. They pick dandelions. Dandelions. Give them to their mothers. That's right. You know? So don't, they don't have to be ex- expensive. Uh, the old saying is, it's the thought that counts. But I like to remind folks, it's not the thought left in your head that counts. It's the gift that came out of the thought oh, yeah. in your head. Right. So, so gifts. And then there's uh, acts of service, doing something for your spouse that you know they would like for you to do. You mentioned washing dishes, you know. Yeah. It could include things like vacuuming floors, cooking meals, uh, mowing grass, watching the car, walking the dog, changing the baby's diaper. Woo, big <laughs> act of <Right>. service. <laughs> Anything you know your spouse would like for you to do. You know the old saying, Matt, actions speak louder than words. That's true for these people. So it's true. Is their love language. Because you could actions. sit and you could tell this person you love them. But they just want to see it. They want it. They want the service. Absolutely. You know, uh, my my love language is words of affirmation. So when I got married, what did I do? I gave my wife words of affirmation. That's right. I didn't know anything about love languages, but I just knew that's the way you express love. You know, so I gave her words of affirmation. And uh, I discovered later that didn't make her feel loved. In fact, one night she said to me, you know, you, you keep on telling me that you love me. If you love me, why don't you help me? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, why don't you get off your duff and vacuum the floor? It's so true. Yeah, so act of service, and then there's quality time, giving your spouse your undivided attention. I do not mean sitting on the couch watching television right. because someone else has your attention. I'm talking about sitting on the couch with the TV off, looking at each other, talking to each other, or taking a walk down the road together and talk, or going out to eat, assuming that you talk. You know, Matt, you can almost always tell the difference between dating couples and married couples in <laughs> yeah. a restaurant. You know, dating couples are looking at each other and talking. Married couples are sitting there and eating or, more likely, looking at their smartphone. You know? <laughs> so true, isn't it? So now, I mean, and that's a big, that's a, that's a thief of, qual- of a person that loves quality time is when you pull that phone out. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely, absolutely. So quality time. And then number five is physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. That's why we pick up babies and hold them and kiss them and cuddle them. And long before the baby understands the meaning of the word love, the baby feels love, Mm. a physical touch. So in marriage, it's such things as holding hands, kissing, embracing, the whole sexual part of the marriage, uh, hand on their shoulder, uh, driving down the road, you just put your hand on their leg, uh, you know, sitting around the house, you trip them. Yeah, yeah. I'm kidding, man. yeah. But you tease, you touch, you. T- I mean, but it's, it really <laughs> well, is. It's kind of any physical. Spouse. Yeah, <laughs> a it, physical touch. Yeah, I think it's fascinating um, how you've uh, because this is the complaint. Everybody has a complaint, right? And one of the things that I love about your approach is it's pretty obvious what your partner's uh, love language is simply by what they complain about. Yeah, the complaint reveals the love language. You're exactly right. If your wife says, we don't ever spend any time together anymore, she's telling you you quality time is her language. Uh Uh, If your husband says, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it, he's telling you physical touch is his language. If you go on a business trip and come home and your spouse says, you didn't bring me anything? (laughs) (laughs) They're telling you. There's a gift. Gift is their language. You know, Matt, I found... 
that husbands in particular tend to get defensive if their wife brings up something, complains yeah. about something. You know, if, if she says we don't spend any time together, he's likely to say, what do you mean? We went to dinner Thursday night. Yeah. You know, but, but really, when your spouse, husband or wife, is giving you a complaint about something, they're really telling you what their love language is. And, and what's amazing, too, is, is kind of the opposite of this. So if I go home and I'm, I like physical touch and I want a hug, but my wife has presented a really amazing dinner— She's probably giving me an act of service, um, a dinner. Um, And so I could actually just notice, okay, my wife loves service, so she's serving me. She's trying to love me my way. And when I'm touching my wife, it's not just that I'm a dirty old man. It might mean that I'm actually just loving her my way. So this helps me understand how they're trying to love me. Absolutely. Observe the behavior of your spouse. If they're always doing things for you, as you indicated, then acts of service is probably their language. If they're always touching you and wanting to hug you, then physical touch is likely their language. If they're always giving you verbal compliments, then words of affirmation is likely their language. They're speaking their own language. So that's another clue. Just observe their behavior. And and you may as well, if you're going to be with this person forever, you may as well learn their language. You know, Matt, I really feel that strongly. Uh, a man said to me some time ago, he said, uh, he said, Dr. Chapman, I read your book, and my wife and I took the quiz in the back of the book, and uh, I found out that her love language is acts of service. He said, but I'm just going to tell you and her, if it's going to mean my vacuuming floors and my washing dishes for her to feel loved, you can forget that. Mm. And I said, well, that is your choice. If you want to live with a wife who has an empty love tank, that's your choice. I much prefer to live with a wife who has a full love tank. You know, if it's vacuuming floors and washing dishes, I say, give me the vacuum. You yeah. know, it's a small price to pay to live with a happy woman. Mm-hmm. So love is, is the desire to enhance the life of another person. And if you understand their love language, why would you not want to speak that language so that you're living with a person who feels loved and is secure in that love and will likely reach their potential for good in the world because they feel loved by you. That was Dr. Gary Chapman in an interview that we uh, had with him a few months ago. Again, Gary teaches the, from the book The Five Love Languages. And honestly, one one of the just perennial favorites, I think, of most marriage counselors This idea that each and every one of us uh, finds love differently, we seek love differently, and we give love differently, it really would be valuable, I think, for all of us to look at our relationships and ask ourselves, how do we fit into it? How do we... Um, how do we love our partner and how do they want to be loved in the end, too? It might be the great antidote to a lot of the selfishness that we see in the world. Obviously, I'm going to try to love the people around me uh, the way I would love them with words of affirmation, maybe a hug or touch. But in the end, it's also just as important that we start to see how others need to be loved and also that we judge what our partners are doing um, with the idea that they are trying to love us. Uh, Again, if somebody wants more touch, they're not doing that just because they're weird or they're just creepy or they're just your, you know, they just, if they want and to give you a hug and that's your spouse, what they may be telling you is that's how they feel close to you. So each and every one of us could probably gather and garner more lessons um, in how to love. You can't be too good 
at loving another person and being loved in this world. So just a little bit of advice again from the show. Remember, our goal here is to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. And we're not going to stop till we can till we can make this world a better place. That is uh, that's our promise. We will continue the journey. More fun next hour. More insights in how to be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Madeline Sherrick about her book, um, Superheroes Club, and her goal really is to just get this dialogue started with our children there, there really are a lot of things I, th- I think that we could be doing to influence our children to be maybe more tolerant, more open, uh, less judgmental. We, we have a lot of issues that um, that are out there. It doesn't mean that we need to, you know, ins- you know, motivate them to go be a great, you know, politician or get engaged in every movement and opportunity out there. But today, the kids are out. They're out doing a little march or a little protest, not a protest, but really some are just doing it. My son didn't even know everything that had gone on in Florida, but he realized that they're, they need support. Kids need support. And so one of the things that I would recommend, I guess, to all of us is to see what we can do while we're talking with our children about what's going on in the world to see if we can't teach our children to be a little more tolerant. And a, and a lot more of uh, of peacemakers, not where you just have to stick your head in the sand and 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 you know accept peace, but promote peace. Find other ways to be more inclusive. So some tools that uh, I would suggest that we all kind of look at to help our kids. Uh, number one, broaden our pool of understanding. A lot of us we talked about it in the first hour. Just the simple power of our language. And having um, – because I'm bilingual and under, and am fluent in Spanish, it, it changes your brain. It changes how I relate to people from other cultures simply because I appreciate deeply um, the Spanish language and, and that culture. It doesn't mean I understand it. It doesn't mean I get it. It doesn't mean I am – uh, would just automatically be brought into the culture. But it does mean because I've studied it and lived abroad, I've been able to to have a different point of view. And there are a lot of different points of view out there. Uh, our earlier guest was talking about the fact that if we just um, could make sure that we in Israel, that Hebrew and Arabic were both um, languages that were being taught, wouldn't that in and of itself, improve our ability to understand each other and communicate to find real solutions. So broaden our pool of understanding. Give your children more opportunities. Seek out more opportunities of of diversity in every in every single way, cultural uh, diversity, religious diversity, um, ethnic diversity. Gather data from other people. Give your child the opportunity to experience children with, with other special needs or um, other issues so that they can broaden their horizon. There is a reason this younger generation is much more open-minded than even the generation before it, 
And some of that is simply um, they're experiencing it more. Another idea that might help us be more tolerant and raise more tolerant kids is let's all avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive. A lot of us oversimplify everything. We make it good or bad, right or wrong, black or white, up or down, guns or no. And the reality is, as we've talked about on the show so many times, it's much more complicated than just black or white. Also, let's be careful that we don't sensationalize everything. Everything that glitters is not gold, folks. And we probably need to not only just teach our kids that, but make sure that we're not paying, um, we're not, we're not getting too sucked in to all the sensational headlines and the, uh, you know, the latest, most sensational thing of the day. Watch out for that. Another goal is send, is make sure that just because you're sensitive to an issue doesn't mean um, I have to be sensitive to it. We can be too sensitive to certain things, and um, sometimes that, I think, creates an, an experience where none of us uh, can feel safe doing anything anymore because everybody's sensitive to something. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. I can worry about your sensitivities. I can also make sure that I don't become so sensitive that I'm incapable of seeing the world from another frame of view. Uh, avoid the online pile-on is the thing I try to teach my kids. If if they see stuff going on on social media, don't jump in. Don't just pile on. Don't just be another voice against. First think it through. Understand your position and make a really effective case for your position. Uh, I had somebody talking the other day that I, I heard them talking about the fact that um, their wife – does kind of get involved in a lot of social media, you know, issues where she's sensitive to certain things. But what she does is she goes slowly about um, writing her position. And she writes it in such a way that it actually is additive to the conversation. It's not a pile on. It's additive. And um, she makes a case with data and support. And it actually elevates the conversation. So if you want to be involved in the social media, I teach my kids, then be involved, but be additive. Be bringing something to the equation. Don't just pile on. Don't just jump in. Don't just spew negative stereotypes or prejudice. Jump in and actually bring some light to the discussion. Bring something new that others wouldn't think about, and um, that way your conversation and your piece of the conversation is is helpful. Another powerful thing I think that helps intolerance is um, let our values and our principles actually appear in our talk. So if you want your children to be tolerant, then you've got to be talking about tolerance and you've got to be talking about your principles, whether it's fairness, whether it's decency, respect. But if you believe in those things, if you believe in loving your neighbors, then Let's make it be more than just a concept. Let's make it become part of our dialogue and description. I can't tell you how many times with uh, people as I'm as I'm working with couples, for example, that have conflict, they their how they manage the conflict is in no way tied to their values, to the principles that they espouse. Over and over, they people come in and tell me. How, you know, they were married in a church, they were married in a temple, they were married in a synagogue, and yet their church, their synagogue, and their temple 
never seem to be appear when they're actually in their conflict. If we want people to believe what we say, then let's see if we couldn't integrate more of our values into and our principles into how we talk. So it's going to be hard for your kids to know what to stand for if they don't know what the values are and the principles are. So talk more about it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And that work that by uh, Dr. Madeline Sherrick in her book, um, Superheroes Club, it's it's about talking about your principles and sharing your principles and then telling your kids, this is what we believe in. This is why we do what we do. Um, and what's powerful about this is once you've laid down those principles, then every single issue that comes up, whether it's shootings in Florida or immigration issues or um, – you know, the latest political discovery or why mom or dad's a Republican or a Democrat, each one of those conversations could come down to our principles, not our positions on any of those issues. There's got to be principles at play here. And how powerful would it be to hand down to your children the idea that principles are alive in our family, guys? Principles govern how we react to each other, how we interact with each other. And uh, then all of a sudden, you've you've probably handed down something that will be invaluable and um, hopeful to your kids. Last but not least, if you want to create tolerance with your conversations with your children, build bridges that um, that you can build on. Defer to uh, to go face to face, look eye to eye, and and figure out where can we start to build a bridge on certain issues. You don't need to finalize the bridge, but if you can see a place where we could take two different shores on different sides of a river and start to build a bridge between the two, let's start doing that. If you can see a way that you can actually create a bridge between uh, immigration issues by appreciating immigrants and by supporting security – If you find a place where that can happen, start building the bridge there. We need more people to be building bridges, and we also need, I think, each and every one of us to be willing to cross some of those bridges and and be willing to go to both sides and understand both sides of the issue. Many times we're staring across the river at each other with a completely different view on the other side of the river, but because we've never walked on the other side of the river, we don't ever understand it. And instead of just running to one side of the river or the other side of the river, we need people that can understand both sides of the issues to communicate what they know. I I see it all the time with uh, LGBT issues where some people don't understand it. And instead of being frustrated or angry that some people don't understand the LGBT issue or others that just do not understand um, the whatever, the Christian view of LGBT issues, um, we, we don't – I don't need the polarization there. What I need is somebody that is a Christian LGBT uh, person that can talk both sides of the issue and help us all start to bridge some of this, understand some of this. That's why there's power when we've had these experiences in our lives with whatever the issue, with whether it's religious freedom issues, whether it's LGBT rights, when we can converge and bring these together – There's power in how we can solve that. And instead of always polarizing everything, there is power if we could actually take the 
the same issue and not polarize it, but bring us into one conversation with each other that's informed. If you've been able to bridge things before, please help the rest of us bridge them now. That's how you create tolerance. Again, let your values do the talking. Avoid the online pile-on. Avoid being overly simplistic, sensational, or sensitive, and broaden your pool of understanding. And if you have built a bridge, if you understand where there are bridges that can be built between differing opinions, will you please start building those bridges? It's just another thing that we all need as humans here on this earth. Powerful stuff, folks. Uh, Tolerance. It's really what life is about, I think, is understanding that we are all in this same journey together, and we're all just trying to get through it with, uh, with more love, hopefully. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, social media shows us smiling faces surrounded by happy people in beautiful locations. But we all know that it's just a moment in time and not necessarily a state of living. The time in between those when those pictures were taken and posted can be filled with loneliness. And uh, for many, this loneliness is uh, is overwhelming, especially as as we get older, elderly Americans suffer more and more loneliness, according to research studies, especially in times of winter. But this doesn't have to be the case. Joining us to talk about um, the power of being alone, the power of solitude, Dr. Kim haynes Eitzen argues in her article that one isn't always the loneliest number. And she's going to show us how through history uh, there's great examples of how to gain power in solitude. Um, Dr. Kim haynes Eitzen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Now, you have, a, you have a history. You've studied ancient Mediterranean religions with specialty in early Christianity, early Judaism. Talk about—I uh, mean, there's a history of, of nomads or of, of hermits, people that would, that would live alone and, and found incredible peace in being alone. That's right. Um, I mean, we have both—we have abundant evidence of—, of certainly people living on the move, the nomadic life, but we also have um, stories about individuals who decided for various reasons to leave their city urban context and go out into the wilderness. Um, And I work especially on this movement um, monasticism in early Christianity, and one aspect of that is this decision that some individuals made, um, say, in Egypt or Sinai, um, to leave their urban center um, and go out into the desert. Hmm. And they did it. They did it, I guess, for spiritual reasons. I mean, there are a lot of examples of uh, in Scripture that, like, the mountains were the temples where they would go commune with their God, or the deserts. It was a spiritual journey for many. It was certainly a spiritual journey, um, and in many ways the stories are crafted after some of the biblical stories about going into the wilderness. Um, So the the wilderness has this sort of multiple valences to it. On the one hand, it's this place that you go and you are tempted, you're tried, you're put to the test. And on the other hand, it's a place where you have revelation. Um, You 
discover things. You might have visions. So it, it's it's a very interesting um, it's a, an interesting landscape, an interesting place. We're looking at this kind of paradox of place. Do we live in a time? Um, we now find out more and more. In fact, BYU did a study about loneliness that, you know, being lonely or feeling lonely is actually, you know, it's it's as, as harmful to your health as smoking many packs of cigarettes a day. It, it, we're finding that it has some impact on us, but I'm assuming that that's people that are lonely, maybe without a purpose or without going through uh, a spiritual journey like we saw with some of these, these, uh, these examples you're giving us. Yes, well, I think... I mean, I'm not I'm not a modern psychologist, but or a doctor, but I've read these some of these studies, and I think that loneliness certainly is has negative health effects. Um, what's not clear to me, though, is whether you one one can be lonely in the middle of many people in the right. midst of many people, and so it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as solitude. That's true, um, and I think we all feel this pull between this hyper-connected world that we live in, and sometimes a a yearning for some solitude. Um, And how does one find that aloneness in a good way? But artists and composers, um, religious hermits have, have valued that experience of solitude. Yes. Talk about um, what you learned in your research about what specifically what what specifically creates the the more peaceful moments of of being alone or solitude what what is made up in that time that makes it special well um that's a good a good question i think for the for the stories that i study um about these hermits one of the aspects that i'm most interested in is their um their references to sounds, and there is a curious kind of tension in um, stories about the desert. Some some say, "Well, the desert is a place where you're it's silent. Hmm. So you leave this noisy city, you go to the desert, and it's silent, it's quiet. And that's how you'll have inner peace." On the other hand, the desert is often talked about as the place of howling wilderness and the terrible winds. Um, so I have one story I'm working on by a bishop from Alexandria in Egypt. The bishop's name is Athanasius, and he writes the story of this man named Antony, a young man who leaves the city, goes into the desert, hoping, I mean, really to, to, to find this kind of freedom from disturbances, freedom from distractions. It, some of the language almost sounds like our contemporary world. And when he goes out to the desert, he encounters all sorts of noises, some of them made by demons, lots of stories about demons making noises out there. And they crush in on him, they beat in on him, but there's, there's a real interesting kind of tension between this hyper-distracted, noisy world and this search for a quiet that's not just external, but also internal, a kind of quietude or stillness. Mm. That's powerful. That, yeah, the and and especially to create like a balance between these these quiets. Right, right. I think that's part of what they were looking for. And as this tradition um, of monasticism develops, 
we have growing texts that really focus on how one develops that sense of inner quietude even in the midst of distraction. Mm. Can one cultivate it? They, the language is very much about growing. Can you grow within yourself this inner sense of quiet? Boy, but how appropriate would that be for today when we have so much distraction, so much noise? I mean, I guess this is why we always see those stories of, you know, the Buddhist monk at the top of a mountain sitting alone only in his quietude. That's that's right. I think that it's still a contemporary. And there's even in our country, this country, there's a growing movement to cultivate mindfulness, quiet, meditation, um, it becomes in some ways more urgent, more necessary as the world gets increasingly noisy. Do you Were there things that you could see in their writings of these hermits or in this bishop's writing that would give us insight into how to create the quietude? What are some of the, what are some of the things we, we must do to actually sit in the silence and, and, uh, and let it kind of vibrate in us? Well, one of the things they talk about is, um, I mean, we might put it in, in our, our language today, we might say, have a mantra. One of the, the things that they talk about is memorize some scripture and repeat, repeat that scripture, huh. or memorize the Jesus prayer. Um, have words under your breath. You may not be necessarily speaking it out with a full voice, but cultivate a practice. It's a, it's a kind of training your mind um, and cultivating this stillness with a repetition of words. So the books of uh, the Psalms were used frequently um, for this kind of practice. And it's, it's almost like to do so, you're using your mind to hold a thought uh, or an idea while you're able to to not necessarily fixate on the idea, but allow space to have other thoughts come in. That's right. That's right. And there's, there's, one other, there's another piece to this. In the stories that we have, what often seems to have happened, and again, we don't know numbers, how many people actually undertook to show their, their Christian faith by going into a life of solitude, but... Um, one of the things that happens in these stories is that sometimes these individuals, these hermits, become quote-unquote famous, and they attract visitors. And so the, the other tension going on in, this, in these stories is that they've gone out to the desert for some solitude, for quiet, um, and people start flocking to them hmm. for, to, to get prayer from them or to, just to see them. Um, and so the story of Antony, as Athanasius tells it, he has to keep going farther and farther and farther into the deeper recesses of the desert. <laughs> he just really wants to get away. That's right. <laughs> he really wants to get away. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Kim Haynes Eitzen, who uh, is a professor of ancient Mediterranean religions with a specialty in early Christianity, early Judaism, and uh, uh, religion in late antiquity at Cornell University. She's teaching us about the joyous solitude that she learned about from the early hermits. 
and they might be teaching us how to to manage being alone in life. Um, one of the things I noticed that's interesting that as these as these uh, hermits would be able to find more peace and be more at one with this this higher power in life. It attracted people to them, and yet their their ultimate objective wasn't necessarily it wasn't relational at all. It was it was very almost individual. It, well, I guess it was communing with a higher power. Yes, um, because they yeah. kept moving away as pe- as people would come. Um, they would move away. We, it seems like we live in a society today where we are more relational in a way. We we keep through social media and all sorts of strategies that we now have. Um, yes, we keep circling back to one another in, in, in various to various means. Um, so I think on one level it's different, but on, in another way it's fairly similar, because I think what's coming out in these stories is a problem that we all face today, which is how much, to, how much togetherness, how much aloneness, and um, finding that kind of balance between enough time to reconnect with oneself and enough time to feel connected to others. Hmm. It's true because it's, there's, there are many of us that can't be alone. We don't right. want to be alone with our thoughts, with our minds, and um, with that higher power. That's interesting. Did, yes, I, I think it can be. I mean, the stories... Um, do talk about terror, you know, that it's not all peace and uh, it's not something where the story is crafted and it looks like this figure goes to the desert, instantly finds peace. He, he goes to the desert the way the story is told and he does battle with his thoughts, with his, you know, his inner demons, with external forces. He's doing battle. Um, it's, it's partly a testing and a trying, and it, it, it takes, the way the story's told, it takes a long time to cultivate a sense of quietude. There's, there's, I think for many of us, there's a terror in being completely alone. Mm. Were, were these hermits at a certain age? Um, it, it is interesting in our society where as seniors age, they tend to have more time alone, but that aloneness for many of them, is is terrifying, like we're hearing about here. Um, but were these hermits that you studied younger than seniors, or were they doing this older in age? Well, all we really have to go on in this case um, are these narratives that depict them as, as young. Um, Antony is probably, in this story, roughly the age of 20. Um, the way the story is told, his parents have both died. He has a younger sister, and he begins to feel burdened by all the pressures upon him and decides he sells everything. Uh, part of the story is he's going past the church, um, and he hears the story, um, uh, the passage from the Gospel of Matthew, if you would be perfect, go sell everything you mm-hmm. own and give to the poor. And he takes that literally. He sells everything, he gives, he prepares some sort of fund or something for his sister, the way the story is told, and then he begins to head in increasing stages farther and farther away from the city, from the village. 
Yes, so he's, he's younger. I think in many cases it's hard for us to tell, although when we look at some of the sources for monasticism in the 4th and 5th century, we, it's a mix of ages. We certainly have people who are older, who have had families, who decide to take up a monastic life later in life. They are joining a monastery in that case, so that is a, another kind of community. Um, they, I, they, they don't quite fit into the category of hermit. We know a little bit about children at these monasteries. Um, so it's a real mixture of ages, I think. That is fascinating. Is it, um, as you look at it, again, you could go to a monastery with, uh, with monks that have taken a vow of silence, and they can all be sitting in the same space but seeking quietude. That's right, yes. They can, be, they can take a vow of silence and... To, to speak would itself be a form of distraction, and so it, it disrupts this cultivation cultivation of um, quietude. Wow. What, what else have you learned? I can only imagine just some of the things you've forgotten, Kim, um, that the rest of us would benefit from living in such a chaotic world. What other things do you see um, that we maybe want to learn from these past hermits? I think one other important, one thing I've learned, um, and a a sort of thread running throughout my research right now, is about paying attention. And I think one of the ways, they, they talk about this in terms of quietude, but they also talk about it in terms of a kind of attention. What holds our attention? Um, I, I'm particularly interested in how our acoustical environment, our, the sounds around us, whether that's people speaking or the sounds of, sil- uh, of sirens or the sounds of birds and water, how those kinds of sounds around us um, that we live in or within shape a sense of not only where we are, but who we are in that place. And I, I found by working on these texts and looking at the way they talk about the sonic environment um, in which these monks were living, even though we're really only getting hints here and there of that kind of environment, um, I think it says something about how we, how we pay attention, hmm. um, where we put our minds and how we attend to where we are and where we are in any given moment. Which is it's so important of a, of a discussion and probably investigation as so many people today are struggling with attentiveness and attention disorders. Yes. Well, we, we, we all have so many. For a while, it seemed like we were all supposed to be multitasking, but now they're telling us multitasking is not good for us. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we have to now unlearn multitasking and, and rethink what, where we put our energies um, and how many things we're trying to do all at the same time. It's um, was it, I, I guess, each of the stories you've studied, just because of your focus of study, was it? It was all a spiritual, seemingly journey. Were were there any hermits that you saw that were just maybe alone because of introversion? They just didn't. They weren't seeking, you know, transcendence or uh, a higher state of being. They just didn't like beings. Yes, that's it's tricky because of the kinds of sources 
that we are u- that I'm using, they are. I mean, they are stories, and it's very hard to tell to separate out the way the story is told from the what actually happened on the ground. So the stories are told in such a way to highlight, to amplify the religious dimensions, the spiritual dimensions to the story, and it would be hard to sort of say historically, well, maybe Antony really just left because he was just sick and tired of the city. You know, he wanted just a break from everything. Yeah. You know, it's hard to say what his motives were or the motives of other kind of solitaries. And the other thing I would say is that sometimes it's very often hard, actually, to recover archaeologically good evidence of hermits because they sometimes used caves. Mm. Sometimes there wouldn't be much. There's not a, a strong record. Most of our archaeological record of hermits comes from caves or small structures that are situated near monasteries. So the story says he's by himself, but then in terms of the material remains, it looks like there was still there in monasticism this combination of a hermit, but also connected to a communal monastery. Sure. Yeah. Um, Kim, as we as we wrap up, what's the one thing that we could take away from your research um, that would help us find this joyous solitude in our lives today? When we have that moment of time when we could be alone, is there one thing that you recommend we just learn to do? Well, the first thing I would say is if we could learn to breathe. Um, when these monastic texts talk about cultivating this quietude, they used word they use words like inspiration and um, they talk about breathing and they talk about prayer as a kind of breath and having you know something on your lips that you could utter that's helpful to you. So I think even the ability this I think is sometimes very, very difficult to reconnect with one's own, cycle of breathing um, is a very useful way to start. Powerful, powerful stuff. Dr. Kim Haynes-Eitzen, thank you so much for your time and your great work there at Cornell University, doing what you can, it looks like, to help us understand uh, our history in order to to better live in our present. It's not easy finding solitude and uh, quietude amidst this world that we live in, but um, there are ways, breathing, praying, praying. meditating, recitation, powerful stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show. When we come back, we'll be doing a little Coach's Corner, helping us all uh, to find the peace in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball, friends. You know, um, you wonder how much of our anxiety in today's day and age is coming from our inability to just sit alone. Think about the hermits that uh, Dr. Kim was talking about there, that they didn't have books to go sit alone and read. So they weren't reading. They weren't, um, you know, they weren't on the internet. They probably weren't listening to a podcast, right? They weren't just cooking up dinner all day. They they weren't decorating their house. They weren't 
driving their automobile, they literally would just go sit and think and experience life and watch a bird and chase a grasshopper and watch the ants build their little home and be influenced. And their thoughts, think of how many of your thoughts today aren't even original, right? I mean, your thoughts are coming from someone else's thoughts or something you just heard on the news, or very few of our thoughts are actually original. But back then, they could create some original thoughts in their mind, a thought that didn't come from somebody else. Do you create that space in your life to actually think or to be inspired, to let spirit into you? Inspiration, uh, isn't it interesting how breath and inspiration um, are ways of getting this spirit into you? And do you have the space, do you have the time to actually sit? And do you not have it because you're just so busy, or do you not have it because deep down you dread the idea of having to be alone with your thoughts? Because, what would we learn? So scary. So think about it. How, how are you at being able to get inside of yourself and truly find peace? Um, are you able to truly go connect into a higher power? Do you have the ability to actually attend and pay attention to something? Um, and if not, are there ways in your life, that, are there certain things that you already know you should be maybe turning off, turning down, turning away from? or turning toward that might help you uh, create this quietude. We probably need more of it, don't you think? We need more of it. And again, we will always have an excuse for why we don't, because this world is always going to have the noise. But if the majority of what we have in life is noise, um, then all we have in our life is confusion, chaos, so if we need clarity, we, we probably need to create some space for it. There might be some ways to do that, simply even driving in your car. You don't have to make use of every second of your life by more education, more learning, more podcast, even more radio listening. Maybe it is time to turn the radio off. Maybe it is time to quit taking on those news feeds. Maybe it is time to look at social media and, and only once a week. And only for a short period of time. Making some choices. Again, you don't need to be um, you don't need to be a hermit, but you you also probably wouldn't be hurt right now by being a hermit and seeing if you couldn't let some spirit in. So you have some solitude, some true joy um, in your heart, in your life as you go through it. So interesting. Another uh, lesson brought to you by the hermits of the world. <laughs> powerful stuff. We'll continue the journey up next. We're going to be revisiting uh, more of an interview I did with Gary Chapman, who's the author of the book, The Five Love Languages.
Welcome back. You know, today on our shows, um, we've been revisiting some interviews that I did with Dr. Gary Chapman, who is a nationwide uh, marriage counselor, a pastor, a seasoned writer. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Five Love Languages, How to Express Heartfelt Commitment to Your Mate. His book has been read by millions uh, throughout the, the country and the world. And um, I, I can't tell you how many people I have talked to that that are living day in and day out by his uh, five love languages uh, concept. In our conversation that I've I've had with him, I I asked him um, what what he would say to people who who uh, who you know are in a marriage and in a relationship and they're struggling with the idea that they believe that love shouldn't be this hard. And a part of that is because when we're in love, we go through that phase when we're in love, all of this just kind of flows out of us. I mean, we, we're just pushed along by the euphoric feelings of, of that in love experience, and we're doing all kinds of things that really aren't natural for us. But the lifespan of that in love experience is about two years, average yeah. two years. We come down off the high, and that's when love has to be intentional. That's when love has to be learned. And if you don't learn to speak your spouse's language, the emotional love tank does get empty. And you begin to feel like, they don't love me. They Mm. wish they weren't married to me. And life begins to look dark. But that doesn't have to happen. If you understand the love languages and you speak each other's language, when you come down off the high, you still feel love. Because you're receiving love in a language that's meaningful to you. And you're losing yourself. I mean, that's one of the ideas is that I guess people think that they're going to find the perfect mate instead of being the perfect mate. You know, instead of loving my partner, her way actually changes me. It makes me more charitable. Yeah, exactly. And you know what happens so many times, and this is what's tragic about it, is that people come down off that high, their differences emerge, they don't know how to love each other. They don't know anything about the love languages. And so they begin to argue about their differences, and they say nasty and hurtful things to each other. And before long, they're asking, why did we get married? Mm. We don't even like each other. Yeah. And then you know what happens. They get, they get what I call the tingles. Yeah. <laughs> they get the tingles for somebody else. And that whole in love thing starts over with somebody else. And so they leave their spouse and go off with the second person. And we all know that the divorce rate in second marriages is higher than the divorce rate in first marriages. Right. So the answer is not following the tingles from person to person. The answer is learning how to love the person to whom you're now married. And you almost have to lose yourself, don't you, to, to find yourself. It's the old scripture. You got to lose your need to have it, have to have your love your way, per se. And instead, you're just going to love your partner their way. And it seems like in a, in a, in a way you end up becoming more well-rounded in love. Well, I think so. You know, love essentially is an attitude of giving. It's the desire to enhance the life of your spouse. And we all know that a person who is a loving person is going to enjoy life far more than a person who is self-centered. In fact, self-centered people will never have good marriages. But people who choose to put others above themselves and reach out to love other people are not only going to enhance those people's lives, but they're going to enjoy life. More. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's the thing that love love stimulates love. And when I choose to speak my wife's love language, it touches her at a deep emotional level. 
and she's far more likely to reciprocate and, and reach out to love me in my language. Uh, Gary, how long have you been married? Forty-five plus years. You know, it's fifty-three now. Is it really that? Is so that? Yeah. Oh. I got married when I got married when I was nine. Okay, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Those were the good old days, weren't they, Gary? <laughs> oh man, that's you beautiful. Know, man, though, uh, to be very honest with you, uh, Carolyn and I had real struggles in the early years of our marriage. I mean, severe struggles. Even though we re- we agreed on religious matters, we believed God was important and all of that, but we had tremendous struggles in our marriage, and maybe. That's why I'm so empathetic with people who sit in my office, and I know sit in your office, and say, we just don't see any hope. We just feel like it's too many things have happened, you know, because I I was there in those early years. You know, I I thought I'd married the wrong person. I thought it's never going to work out. It's never going to get any better. Uh, But, you know, God helped us, and I have so much hope for other people. That, that their lives can be changed, and, and a lot of it centers around what we're talking about today, mm. and that is the choice to love the other person and then learn how to do it. And I love, I love that you're so real about that, because that's to, to know that you went through that, Gary, makes this even more credible, right? Because it is, it's learned. It's not just, this isn't yeah. hype, this isn't theory, this is real life. What percentage of this is an interesting statistic if if it's still the one I think it is what percentage of the couples that you see share the same love language Not very many uh typically a husband and wife will have a different love language now, yeah. couples some couples do have the same love language uh but if they have the same love language uh they'll have different dialects mm-hmm. within yeah. that language yeah. that they prefer but um, uh, most of the time, husbands and wives will have a different love language. Which is interesting because I think we assume when we're first all charged up chemically, we love everything. Every yeah. language is firing. Um, yeah. And we kind of settle into the ones that are more ours, right? I think so. And, you know, what I'm saying in the book is, first of all, you learn, you discover their primary love language. Then you give heavy doses of that then you can sprinkle in the other four mm-hmm. for extra credit. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, because any of us appreciate any of those five, but one of them is going to speak more deeply to us than the other four. Mm. How how were you impacted um, by? I mean, you also have degrees in you know religion, and you're a very you're a very you're a pastor. You're a very spiritual man. How did how did the spiritual side of your life impact a lot of your writing and work? You know, I think uh, one of the big things was that's what gave us the breakthrough in our marriage. Uh, You know, I was actually studying to be a pastor when I was going through all these troubles Mm. in my marriage. And I remember the day I finally said to God, I don't know what else to do. I've done everything I know to do. It's not getting any better. And as soon as I said that, there came to my mind a visual image of Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his followers. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I just heard God say to me, that's the problem in your marriage. You do not have the attitude of Christ toward your wife. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, Matt. You know, and I just said, because I I remember what Jesus said when he stood up. He said, I'm your leader, and in my kingdom, this is the way you lead. Hmm. The leader serves. Right. And I knew that was not my attitude. You know, my attitude in the early days was something like, look, I know how to have a good marriage. If you'll listen to me, we'll have one. <laughs> if you'll just be <laughs> quiet. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so I blamed her, you yeah. know. But that day I got a different message. And I just said to God, Lord, forgive me. With all of my study in Greek and Hebrew and theology, I have missed the whole point. Mm. And, then I, and then I said, please give me the attitude of Christ. Well, and that and, is so basic, isn't it? 
It's just it is, you know? it's a it's just the attitude of charity of love. Yeah, and you know, looking back on it, it was the greatest prayer I ever prayed regarding my marriage because really God changed my heart and He gave me a desire to serve my wife. I didn't know anything about love languages at that point, but I started asking her three questions. Uh, Honey, what could I do to help you? Second, how could I make your life easier? And the third question, how could I be a better husband? Mm. And she started giving me answers, and looking back on it, she was really teaching me how to love her. You know, I didn't realize all that, but sure. my attitude was changed. I wanted to help her, and, and, and she began to answer those questions for me. And in about three months, it didn't turn around overnight, but in about three months, my wife started asking me those three questions. Isn't that amazing? When you get, when you get two people who are reaching out, trying to serve each other, and wanting to learn how to serve each other, you're going to have a great marriage. And that's, that's, I think that's what God intended marriage to be. How, so what can I do to help? How can I make it easier for you, mm-hmm. and how can I be a better husband? Right. Yeah. And and the, and then and then listen, right? And then listen. And then listen. Yeah. Now take the take the information they give you and answer to that, and let that be a guideline on how you invest your time and energy in their lives. And uh, you know, love stimulates love, as I said earlier. Yeah. And uh, you know, when a husband and wife are reaching out like that to each other, uh, you both then are free free to to use your talents and abilities to bless the world. And, uh, you know, I so wish, Matt, that we could rediscover that uh, in, in the church, that that we're here to love other people. And when we do, we're enriching the world. Yeah. And it should start in the marriage, you know, and then it flows to the children and then beyond the family. The marriage is, a, it's a different relationship, isn't it, than any other that we have? Because they're our peer, they're our equal, and yeah. they know everything about us. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 designed of God, I think, to be an intimate relationship. You remember in the in the book of Genesis where God said it's not good for man to be alone. You bet, you bet. You know, isolated, cut off, and God's answer was the creation of Eve, the institution of marriage, and then it says they will become one flesh. Yeah. It's the opposite of being alone. It's deep, deep intimacy. You know, it's it's a deep connection between the two of you. And when you learn how to share life like that, and in love and support and encourage each other, uh, I think you experience what God designed marriage to be in the first place. That was Dr. Gary Chapman, author of the book, The Five Love Languages, uh, in an interview that we, we had with him, I think it was probably about a year ago, and we're revisiting those learnings. You know, one of the things, too, to remember that, um, that that's kind of fun when you listen to a guy like Gary talk he he sees such a deeper purpose in the marriage than just, you know, some merging of two human lives. He sees that there's this other higher purpose of it, this connection to a higher power, this connection to um, something bigger. And so one of the things I've actually been doing more of recently and have found a lot of uh, insight in doing it is studying other people's marriages. It might be good for all of us to go start finding people in our lives that we think have great marriages and uh, no matter where you are in the marriage world, go start asking them questions about what their advice would be. What did they notice? Start learning about the impact that their marriage uh, um, has had uh, and what marriages influence them. Start learning what good marriage looks like because a lot of us, we just don't have those models maybe in our immediate circle, but they might be somewhere in our family line or you know, in our church, in our congregation. Just a little uh, fun advice. Uh, Appreciate your time. Again, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you be the good in the world.